You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 79, with me, Robert Plotkin. Today is a special episode where we flip the script. Last year, I had the honor of being on the Paul Miners podcast, discussing how to balance technology and mindfulness. You can head on over to paulminers.com for more productivity tools from Paul. We've received a lot of requests from you for tips, suggestions, and resources on how to balance productivity and how to use technology mindfully during this challenging time. In this episode, Paul and I explore how to be more mindful with technology without destroying your creativity or focus or attention. Please check out technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about how to be more focused, productive, creative, and happy using technology. And sign up for our mailing list to receive a free guide on how to find balance and manage your technology use with mindfulness. So let's get back to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with today's episode from the Paul Miners podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Paul Miners podcast to episode number 120. And today I am coming at you with an interview with Mr. Robert Plotkin, who is the author and blogger behind technologyformindfulness.com and the uh, very popular podcast as well. As you know, I don't do a lot of interviews on this podcast unless I think the guest is really worth hearing from. So you know when I have an interview, uh, it's really worth listening to. And I'm really excited to introduce you to Robert today. Now, let me start by listing or reading Robert's bio because I think it's very impressive. So Robert is the founder of the technologyformindfulness.com blog, a leading blog and top 40 iTunes podcast on science, technology and mindfulness. Robert's unique approach to technology and mindfulness stems from his combination of, get this, expertise in technology as an MIT-educated computer scientist and decades of experience with Japanese martial arts, Zen Buddhism, and training in mindfulness-based stress reduction. He's written seven books on the social impact of computer technology. He's a co-founder of the Hack Your Mind program at MIT and the host of the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. And I think being more mindful when it comes to technology is something we could all benefit from in this day and age where we are just overwhelmed with different tools, social media, content, alerts, notifications, communication tools coming at us from every single angle. I think we're more distracted than ever and it really can hurt and damage not only our focus and our creativity, but even just our sense of organization, our sort of inner peace. I think the reason we feel so busy is because of how technology often distracts us. And so I think you're really going to enjoy this interview with Robert. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation all about technology and mindfulness with Mr. Robert Plotkin. Enjoy. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Paul Miners podcast and welcome Mr. Robert Plotkin. And thank you for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. I think it's going to be a blast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Um, as you would have heard in the beginning, um, Robert has a very impressive bio, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today. So thank you for, for giving up your time. And I thought maybe the best place to start would be if you could just tell us your story, give us your background. It's really interesting how you've gone from a computer scientist um, and working at MIT to expert in Japanese martial arts uh, and talking about mindfulness and technology. You've got Zen Buddhism thrown in there so how how did these two very different worlds come together for you 
Yeah, you know, it's been a, it's been a long journey. I do have a little bit of gray hair now, and there's this few different aspects of my life all tied together, you know, to to bring me to this place now where I continue to work on helping myself to be more mindful and productive and how I use technology, but also teaching other people to do the same. Mm. So uh, let me talk a little bit about this intersection of my background in computer science and high tech and, and patent law on the one hand, and the Japanese martial arts on the other hand, and how they, they've combined together. I'll start, I'll start with the martial arts first. And let me say, I don't think I'm a, I'm a martial arts expert. I have been studying since I was about 10 or 11 years old. Wow. Uh, only a first degree black belt in Shotokan karate, which is not considered a master by any, by any stretch of the imagination. But I have been doing this on my own. It's been a real passion of mine for, for a long time. You know, and one of the things that you know, I, I learned from the beginning and continue to work on improving at is how to respond internally to an attack. Let's say someone's throwing a punch at your face, right? You have some instinctive response to it which might be flinch, you know, freeze, uh, fight or flight is a way that people often describe it. There's an external reaction, often your body tightening, or, and then an internal reaction, a feeling of fear, mm. uh, or it might be aggression in response. But you have these instinctive responses. And in martial arts training, you actually learn how to unlearn your instinct, right, and replace it with new habits, for responding and actually to increase your freedom of choice in how to respond to a punch. So a very beginner level, but right at the right at the beginning, you learn how to remain calm and poised. And that when I say the beginning, it's the beginning and it's still a also a lifetime of yeah. learning <laughs> to learn how to remain poised internally when an attack is coming at you. You learn how to block. That's a simple thing. So you don't get hit. As you get more advanced, you learn more options, how to move out of the way, maybe how to counterattack before the opponent's punch hits you, all kinds of options. And how does this relate to anything about technology and mindfulness? I ask you, when your phone beeps at you, what do you feel? You know, and does that feel at all like when someone's throwing a punch at you? <laughs> didn't didn't I, I say at the start sorry before we recorded I said I need to turn off my email because I'm getting fired by all these or attacked by all these notifications I think I used words to that effect didn't I <laughs> yeah yeah and you know physiologically the response is very much the same now if we want to go to yet another field you know which is evolutionary biology I think the evolutionary biologists would say it's the same response internally as back when our ancestors were attacked by a tiger or heard it rustling you know, off in the distance. You have this fight or flight response, which can be very productive mm. in some ways. But in the world of technology, we've reached, I think we've reached our limits of how much that response helps us. So your phone beeps and what do you do? We tend to react to it, which is by following its lead most of the time. You look at the message that you just got the notification about and then another notification comes in. And then it's a text message, then it's something from Instagram, then it's something from Facebook, then it's a new piece of news. And one just comes right after the other. Our brain is doing what it was evolved to do instinctively. Uh, but in what we, we really aren't prepared to have a thousand mm. of these little attacks come at us one after the other. And if all that we do is just respond based on what our instincts tell us, we will continue to be led along by the technology instead of the other way around. And 
So in terms of my personal journey, I mean, there was a point a few years ago at which, and I wouldn't say this happened all in an instant, but when I was using technology and finding in my work, which is now as a, primarily as a patent lawyer, where I need to stay very focused. You know, if I write a patent application, I work on things like microprocessors and algorithms. I need to be able to sit down yeah. at a computer for several hours in a row and stay focused. Now, when I started using computers in the early 80s, that was very easy because there was no internet. <laughs> computers didn't multitask. There was no distraction on the computer, nothing to pull you in another direction. And I found over the years as we got high-speed internet, mobile devices, multitasking, multiple devices. I'm not going to ask you, let's say, how many you have. I've got two right in front of me right now. You know, it became harder and harder, more of a battle to stay focused while using technology. So I had this realization that the training I had from the martial arts is something that I could apply to my use of technology. And that's something, a part of what I, I teach through the Technology for Mindfulness website, on the blog, on the podcast, and particular through a course that we launched recently called, called Tap into Mindfulness, which is essentially... Mm a series of guided meditation exercises that are derived from traditional mindfulness meditation and martial arts. But the martial arts angle to them is that you do these exercises, and if people are watching the video, you do the meditations with your phone in your hand. Mm. Much like in a martial arts class, you would practice with a partner attacking you. So you simulate interactions with the phone, right. but the, the guidance teaches you new habits to develop and drill into you, into your mind and body to replace. That's really interesting. I'll stop talking for now. Yeah. No, that's really that's really interesting. I, I'm I'm definitely going to be checking that out. Um, so I want to backtrack to something you said because you you I love the metaphor that you've you've created here of how technology is like um, you know fighting somebody. Somebody's fighting you. They're coming to attack you, and you need to block and respond yeah. to that. Now. With an attack, that's obviously a negative thing. Somebody's attacking you. Yeah. We're responding. We're defending ourselves against that. However, I think um, maybe the challenge that we face, and this is just me, my own yeah. kind of thoughts as I was listening to you, is that often these notifications that are coming in, I've seen talks and things online where people describe these notifications. We get like a dopamine hit because sure. it's it's satisfying these notifications it's like a little source of um i don't know enjoyment stimulation during the day and we enjoy that and these tiny little dopamine hits thousands of times a day are actually not good in aggregate but i think the challenge is that you're just so you're describing it as a an attack which more often than not they are because we are being constantly um distracted and we're losing focus but we yeah. maybe perceive them as a positive thing we feel good often getting these notifications so how do you how do you kind of contend yeah. with that? Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that's consistent and the way in which martial arts training is still relevant, even to something that might feel good in the moment, is that that notification, let's say it's for something positive. You know, a friend sends you a link to a funny video or something yeah. like that. There's not there's nothing negative directly in a sense about that. Yeah. What is still the same is that it's something coming in from the outside that you, in a sense, is asserting its own desire about what it wants you to do that is probably different from what you had been intending to do with that time up until that moment. And that's kind of the sense in which it's still, oh, <laughs> that's not my computer, but it's one of the many distractions we often have to deal with. That's a tough one. <laughs> what, what is that? 
That's a that's an ambulance going. Oh, it's by. An, it was they an ambulance. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's still something uh, an, an outside stimulus, right? That's coming to you. Uh, that when I say it's asserting its will, right? The phone doesn't have a will, but it can still feel that way to you and trigger the same physiological response as if someone was attacking you. Right. And so internally, you can use the same skills to maintain your groundedness and your focus on what your own intention is for how you want to spend that time. If you set that intention ahead of time, part of what the the martial arts training does is allows you to stay, keep that focus on your intention in the face of outside stimulus that's trying to get you to focus on something else. That's the similarity. Okay. So can we put a bow on all this then? Can you sum up... um, what what is then the core problem that you're trying to solve in in simple terms like with your website the work that you do what is the main challenge that we everyday people with smartphones and computers what is the challenge that we face what is that problem that core problem you're trying to solve yeah the, the core goal i would say is to be able to use technology to serve our own ends instead of the other way around mm. right uh, so I actually, I, I, I put it that way because you could state it as a negative, how to avoid being distracted by technology. That's good. You know, I think that's good. But to me, you know, that's not assertive enough. Yeah. I don't want to just avoid the negative, right? I actually, and I don't want to give up on the promise of using technology to help make our lives better. I actually want to use technology to improve my life, to boost my own skills, to get all of the benefits from it. But I want my smartphone and my computer to be working for me. Yeah. And yeah. how often does it feel like we are the dog on the leash of the smartphone, right? Yeah. I mean, essentially, that's the work that I'm doing every day as well, working with clients and people on my website. It's about trying to find that balance between, yes, technology is amazing. We have so many tools available to us now, like ways to do email, task managers, calendar apps and things. There's this uh, huge suite of tools we can use. And we can be very productive if we use it well. But often the challenge that people kind of talk about when they come to me is like, I don't know, I don't know how to use this tool. I don't know the best way to set it up. I'm just overwhelmed with too many choices. And it's about finding that balance between using technology in a way that helps you to be more productive without it being a distraction or actually uh, an obstacle um so that's a really interesting topic i think um the part of this that really interests me as well is the evolution because you talked about for example back in the 80s you were working uh on a computer and there was no internet so it was very easy to stay focused can you talk more about you know how this problem has slowly evolved because one of the things i find find interesting is that there maybe isn't one defining moment where it was like everything suddenly, uh, technology suddenly became really uh, challenging to manage. Um, I, mean, I mean, you can talk about this in a lot more detail, but things yeah. like the rise of the internet, social media, smartphones, I think it's a lot of little things that over the last 20, 30 years have gradually changed. It's almost that analogy yes. of the frog in water, isn't it? Where it, the, the water's being yes. boiled and we don't realize it. And, and now we're, we're incredibly distracted. Um, so maybe you could talk about, yeah, the evolution from, from the 80s to obviously today and how you've seen it evolve. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's true. Uh, I think people who maybe have only been using uh, technology since the web, let's say the mid 90s, may not be aware of how much things have changed. That would be me. Yeah. Over t- 
Yeah, you know, uh, certainly people who were born after that time have never seen anything different. I would even go back to the 60s, you know, when digital computers weren't yet in people's homes. They still were the size of a large room. Mm. But there were people back then, and there's a few good books about this, about computer technology and the counterculture in the 60s, you know, where people saw the promise of computers as being tools for what they would call mind expansion, much like certain drugs were being seen in that way back <laughs> in the 60s. People thought of computers as being something that you, if they were developed in a certain way, could augment our minds, right? Help us to expand our range of consciousness. Like meditation was being seen for the first time in the West then, uh, like certain drugs, it was all seen as part, but the point is it was seen as something that would help augment us, right. not control us. <laughs> And, and there was a certain part of the computer science and technology world that had that dream of developing technology in that direction. Mm. Uh, and I just say that because so many people aren't aware of that side of things. But like I said, when I was using computers starting in the 80s, and even as a kid, I started by programming. Uh, you know, I played video games in my day, but I was first introduced to computers by programming. And for those who never saw a computer back then, it had a black or green screen with text on it. And that think of it like a big typewriter, almost. That's all you could do with it. Yeah. You could run one piece of software at a time. So if you were writing a piece of code or a letter, that's really all you could do with the computer at that time. And I found it as something that was actually conducive to staying very, very focused yeah. you know, on, on, on writing. The ability to edit interactively, I think, was, was very useful too. But it wasn't like a word processor these days where you can easily lose yourself into moving stuff around, formatting, inserting graphics, doing research on the web. You know, I've seen statistics that say people on a, you know, Microsoft Word can spend up to 40% of their time formatting rather than writing when wow. they're writing a document. You know, so back then, I think it, it was computers could be a great tool for focusing. There's a few key points in the evolution. One was the web. OK, uh, that that was the beginning of a big time suck, uh, the, the ability to go on to different sites. And certainly as the amount of pages on the Web expanded exponentially, that was number one. Mm. Two, I would say, would be computers increasingly multitasking. And again, that's so ingrained now. I think many people may not even know that that's a thing. There's an that there's another way. Like I can see you right now and uh, I see the Zoom menu in the background and my calendar is kind of off on the side. And of course, if I wanted to, I could switch back and forth between yeah. them easily. That wasn't always true. So that's a huge... And even simple things like multiple tabs on Safari or Chrome, right, as well. Like I think back right. in the 90s, uh, I used Internet Explorer and I think it was just one tab initially. Just one tab, yeah. right, just one tab. Uh, you know, I remember the first version of the iPad, and I really thought that was a great device. It was only everything was full screen only. Yeah. And over the years, the iOS has developed. Now you've got picture, you know, screen and screen. A video will still yeah. keep playing when you switch out of it. I think it's a really bad direction. Uh, not to divert too much, but I I have a one of the black and white Kindles. You know, I think that's a great tool. Uh, there's people I know who still like only paper books. I I don't go that far, but I think a single purpose device can be a wise choice at certain times to stay focused and productive to kind of almost go back in time. So let me just continue. Multitasking, mobile devices, clearly, uh, you know, the ability to have the internet on you at any time 
And then, of course, multitasking mobile devices, high-speed wireless internet increasingly available everywhere. Uh, those all put together, I think, are the big developments. As you said, they kind of crept up on us slowly. Yeah. I was just reading a good book, a recent book by Cal Newport called Digital Minimalism. You know, and he mentions that if you go back and you can still watch the first iPhone announcement by Steve Jobs. Yeah. The iPhone one, Steve Jobs wasn't thinking of it as a multitasking uh, supercomputer. He said this is basically an iPod that can make phone calls. <laughs> and they were not, there was no app store. They weren't thinking of this as something where you could freely install any app you wanted. You know, that was not the original vision to have it be a distraction engine, basically. This has happened. The, the, the big problems have all happened relatively recently. You know, that's only about 10 years ago. So this has crept up on us. And I think it's understandably why so many of us yeah. are struggling to kind of catch up with. And that's that's an interesting example because I think the iPhone in the most recent update that came out, they that was the first time they've introduced like screen the screen time graphs and things. Yes. And I get a yes. notification ironically once a week that says, "Hey Paul, here's <laughs> your um, here's your weekly screen time report," and it tells you how long you've spent on the phone, how many times you picked it up, how many notifications you got. And you are st starting to see that more and more um, yes. with, I think, Facebook and Instagram. It's pretty buried. <laughs> you have to go deep yes. into some settings to yes. find these graphs. But I think certain companies <clears throat> are starting to try and almost. I feel like it's almost like they're trying to just tick a box, which is saying, "Okay, we we realize that our our devices or our platform." are you know maybe taking more of people's attention than they should so we'll we'll make this little attempt to try and help you to be more mindful with technology but it's i don't know i feel like maybe they're not doing a great job because i think interesting obviously social platforms like facebook youtube netflix these companies profit from our attention and i think i heard somewhere a while ago netflix or maybe it was an interview i might be mis misquoting this but an in uh, the ceo of netflix or somebody was saying you know who's answering the question who's your competitor and this netflix yeah. person said uh, sleep <laughs> because we just need people to be awake longer and they will watch netflix and so it's yeah. um how do we then how do we become more mindful with technology when there are so many companies now that literally their algorithms and things are programmed to try and keep us on their platform as long as possible. Yeah, this goes back to the point I made earlier about uh, setting and focusing on your own in intention. You know, this is a part of traditional mindfulness meditation to focus on what your intention is and set aside time to meditate on. And there's various techniques for doing that. But whether or not you are even doing any formal meditation, right, you can set aside time. No, a lot of uh, productivity people promote different systems for setting, let's say, a high-level goal for the year. You could think of that as your intention. Now, what is it that you want to stay focused on? This is not a specific task. This is kind of your mission for the year. Personally, it might be something like exercising more. You know, that would be an example. Or an intention might be a certain way you want to be in the world. I want to be more compassionate towards people. Now, that's not a productivity type task. But whatever your intention happens to be, uh, it, you need to find ways of continuously bringing your attention back to that intention. Otherwise, there are so many forces out there, and it's not just our gadgets. I mean, it's also advertising. It's just other people, you know, have their own 
uh, agendas, which may not be malicious in any way, it's very easy to be pulled off in other directions if we don't keep reminding ourselves of what our intention is. And that is part of martial arts training also. Um, you know, I just saw a really good uh, video. I can try to find the link for, for your uh, listeners later. There's a great uh, karate sensei, Rick Houghton in Florida. And uh, he, he shows an example of someone attacking him. And instead of doing the more traditional kind of block and attack, he's like, you know, what if I was just walking to the grocery store? And imagine he's walking, someone punches, he kind of deflects out of the way, keeps walking. He's like, look, my intention was to go to the grocery store. Yet someone happened to come my way and try to punch me in the face. I kind of moved slightly, but didn't lose sight of my intention of just keep walking to the grocery store. That's actually a kind of a master level. So is, is intention, is, is it the same as just having a clear goal? It's just a vision, right? Of, so in terms of people applying that on a daily basis, they need to yeah. sit down rather than maybe just opening their inbox and starting their day responding to all these messages, maybe just take a second um, to think, okay, what is my intention for the day? What do I want to get done? And then using yes. that to filter and, and have a sense of purpose moving forward so that you can essentially deflect these, these attacks. Right. right. That's right. That's right. Because, I mean, how often I think, that, you know, responding to messages is a great example. You can I can easily spend an hour responding to email mm. and feel like I'm being super productive. And in a certain narrow sense, I am. Oh, I've increased my efficiency. And re- yesterday I only responded to 50 an hour. Now I responded to 60 an hour. But if I step back and ask, wait, wait a second, when I started the day, what was my goal for the day? You know, maybe for me, it was to work on a certain client project. And then if I step back and say, well, during that hour, responding to six, did I advance that project? That was my intention for the hour. <laughs> I didn't, if I didn't spend the hour that way, it's only productive in a very, now I remember, um, you know, the uh, productivity guru uh, in the uh, seven habits of highly effective yeah. people, uh, you know, he said, Look, you know, if you're climbing the ladder of success, just make sure you're climbing the right ladder before you get <laughs> yeah. to the top. It's the same thing. You can be productive at things that don't advance your own goals. Yeah. And then in the sense of not really being productive. So I agree. So you could start off your day, whether you physically put a sticky note on your monitor mm-hmm. or you just remember it somehow. Do something throughout the day to keep reminding yourself, pull your attention back to what you're your intention was otherwise it's so easy to get to the end of the workday or 10 o'clock or midnight and say wait a second i've been busy all day but i wasn't really productive in terms of advancing what i set my goal to be so that's a that's a nice example are there any other like red flags or bad habits that you find people often get into like little things that we don't realize that maybe we should look out for so when we catch ourselves we can go okay right this is clearly um I've, i've been derailed i've gone down this rabbit hole of yeah. being distracted. What are those other little red flags or common distractions and habits that you think we need to look yeah. out for? I mean, in, in general, I would say whenever you're reacting, uh, that, that's a good red flag. So it could be to messages. That's so common. When your phone beeps, you pick it up, you start diving. That's reacting. Yeah. Right. That's not being proactive. You are reacting to something else demanding or trying to capture your attention. So there's a million examples. And I'm not saying you should never do that. Uh, there mm. are emergencies. 
There are different priorities. You might be working in a situation with a boss or a client or a friend or a family member where something might come up where you do need to react. I think the problem is that with technology, we often get into a situation where the primary mode we enter into yeah. is reacting to things. Then the, the balance is then tipped way too far. So you can look, the, the challenge is how do you learn to catch yourself when you're reacting? Right, yeah. <laughs> when it's automatic. Now, I would say doing a meditation practice is one, one way to do that, uh, but you don't have to do it that way. You can actually use technology. It always has to be a balance, right? You can just set yourself a reminder every hour. Uh, your reminder can say, remember, my intention was to do or my goal was to focus on X today. Yeah. And when it pops up every hour, you're using technology to remind you of what your yeah. goal was. You're using it for your <laughs> end. So you know, that's just one way to try to turn technology against itself, your own ends. Yeah, it's um. I think you're, you're absolutely, I, I love the idea of talking about reacting. I gave a talk last week and I spent some time talking about uh, instant messaging and communication and what I was saying. Um, and this idea came from the book that came out last year by David Heinmeier Hansen and David Freed. Um, it doesn't have to be crazy at work. I don't know if you've read it, but I've the, heard of it. they were saying, um, so they're the founders of Basecamp and they were saying instant messaging, you know, has kind of evolved out of this need. You know, we had email initially, email was fine. Like in the beginning, you know, we didn't really get too much email, but then as it became more mainstream and widely used and then marketers started uh getting on board with it and sending us email marketing material email then became so overwhelming and so i think instant messaging resolved to try and combat that it's like right yes. let's just get straight to the person we want to talk to and talk to them in real time so it sounds like this great idea but now to your point it's the default mode so we're always in instant messaging apps whether it's you know um skype or using texting on your phone or Slack, which is the common one a lot of organizations use now. Yeah. And so we're constantly having to react to these messages, um, but it means that it creates this need to constantly be catching up and staying on top of the thread that's going on. Because if you st take an hour to go and work, the conversation's carried on without you. Maybe you missed something. Right. Maybe a decision was made without you. And so it's, like you said, we're constantly being um, distracted by these, these tools. And they made the great point that with your communication tools in particular, you should be using asynchronous methods primarily so communicating using task-based systems like asana or Basecamp, and then instant messaging should really only be used what it's designed for which is for the emergencies the fires like what you like you mentioned um so i think sometimes because that again that evolution has been so gradual we need to then actually step back and go are we using these tools in the right way maybe we need to put different parameters around these yeah i think that's absolutely right and i think here we're starting to to transition from what can we do individually? And there's a lot we can do individually to what really needs to be done organizationally. And, and by that, it may, could be within a family. It doesn't have to be a business, but within a team in a business, there is only so much an individual can do. I think some of these things really need to be, or in order to be effective, have to come from agreements, policies uh, among people that are shared about how we're gonna use communication. Because mm. let's say we agree to, to use the uh, email synchronously. You know, if people start not abiding by yeah. that agreement and use text messaging for things that aren't urgent, you know, things start to break down. Yeah. There has to be some shared understanding. And that use actually, I feel like that's another thing that was the case for a very long time. I mean, when email came around, I started using it in 90, around 1990 or so. 
And people didn't expect a response within a week or two, actually. That may seem crazy, you know, but uh, I was at MIT at the time. I'm going to make an embarrassing admission, okay? <laughs> I was a computer science dude at MIT, and that was the first time I had access to email. I went there in 89, and I remember the first time I sat down, this at a terminal, you know, in a computer cluster, seeing people on email. And my thought was, this is ridiculous. Why would I want to use email? I can go home and pick up the phone and call a friend if I want to speak to them. Yeah. What do I need? Or I could write them a letter if I want to write them. Uh, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and, and in part because at the time, you did have to set aside time. You had to walk across campus. It was actually quite a time-consuming thing. The cluster might be full of people. You'd have to wait your turn. But the point is, at that time, there was like a natural division of urgency of communications where people used email for very long-term things that needed a, a long written out explanation and where a kind of a long thoughtful response was called for and telephone for more urgent stuff and then face-to-face -face for the really urgent if you were in, a, in an organization together. And that all did start to break down right. in the last 10 years where there's no shared understanding amongst people about which types of communication are to be used. And then it means that everything is used for everything and it just, it just doesn't work. So, you know, there's a great book called uh, sleeping with your smartphone uh, by someone who's a consultant for Boston consulting group. And, you know, she talked about in, in enforcing, I shouldn't even say enforcing, it can be mutually agreed on among people, policies and understandings about this kind of stuff, not just for productivity, but also for sanity. Yeah. Like, you know, the thing she in instituted was, on these teams of consultants who are working 80 to 100 hours a week with each other, agree that Paul's night off is Wednesday. So people understand he's not going to be messaging anyone and he's not expected to message anyone back. And this resulted in a huge increase in goodwill, camaraderie, feeling of teamwork, feeling that people were supporting each other in addition to just the rest that people got one night, not just not working, but not having to think about what was going on at the team at that time. So, you know, this, in a sense, when you look at it, is a very simple kind of change that can happen in institutional culture, but it has a big impact on people's ability to relax, rejuvenate, and not feel like they have to be on all the time. Yeah, I think you're so right with talking about having a, an agreed set of rules by which we, when to communicate, how we communicate. And I don't think it, it's not just limited to communication, but even around other tools that we use as well, because I see people running into challenges all the time with things like, okay, we have Google Drive or Dropbox for document storage, and we have Trello or Asana for tasks, and we have these other CRMs and things that we use. And there's almost like too many tools in the mix and in an attempt to try and create this masterful system that helps us be more productive now there's a lot of confusion around when do we use each one and where's that document did i email it to you is it in drive did i put it in slack and so i think just what you've said agreeing on the philosophy or the rules around how we use these tools is is really important not just for communication yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of the, t if, if there's too many tools for simplifying, then trying to learn and use all of them gets way, way too complicated. So an another question I have is, um, what would you say to someone who is like too busy for this mindfulness? Just because, um, yeah, I, I see it all the time. People who are just like, I'm so overwhelmed right now. I'm so in the trenches doing my work. Um, I can't really take time to step back and just like, be more intentional or think about my tools. Those people that are just absolutely slammed right now, what do you say to those people? 
I would say this is a really great question. It's very understandable because I think some of the time the way that mindfulness is promoted or that people think about it is that, oh, I need to go on a silent retreat for a week, Mm -hmm. you know, and if I can't do that, then I can't do mindfulness. But, you know, you could do as little, let's just do this right now. We're going to take one deep breath in and out. Okay. So breathe in and exhale. So let me ask you, did you feel any change, positive change or anything in how you felt? What did it take? Five, six seconds? A little bit of weight just lifted, you know? (laughs) Right. So I'm not going to say taking one deep breath is going to totally revolutionize (laughs) your life. It's just to illustrate, I hope people listening did that along with us, that in a really minimal amount of time, you can gain some benefit. So it's, there's, it's, not a, it's not an all or nothing thing. And the fact that you can't spend that week at the silent retreat doesn't mean that there's no hope or there's nothing that you can do. And I think that, you know, I'll use the example of a physical sticky note with your intention of what I want to work on today is that you could remind yourself of what that is in the space of that one deep breath. And by breathing and relaxing, hopefully focus your inten- your attention on it a little bit more in a way that helps that goal sink back into you, you know, the way that it did maybe in the morning when you first had a few minutes yeah. to focus on it. So that's what I'd say. There's, there's so many spaces throughout the day. It can be while you're, while you're walking, it can be in between meetings. It can be between hanging the phone up and picking it back up again for the next call in between messages, yeah. you know, to pause and take, and if you really want to go, go to the extreme, you know, try three deep breaths. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm laughing, but I mean it seriously. Actually, three full deep breaths can feel like a huge break in yeah. the kind of days that we often have. I can definitely relate to this. I feel like, so something uh, with meditation, I've been meditating on and off for, I don't know, probably six or seven years now. The, the challenge I often face is I'll get into a really good rhythm meditating like a couple of times a week, just t- small 10 minute sessions, nothing, nothing major, like 10 minutes, maybe three times a week, let's say. And I'll be pretty consistent with that for a while. And then I sort of slip back into bad habits where uh, I just get busy. And so maybe I don't go for a walk at lunch. And, and usually at lunch, that's when I meditate. So I don't go for a walk. I don't meditate. And then I get busy and I just sort of get into my own head a lot more, get a little bit more anxiety and anxious and just kind of worked up and busy. And then a few more months go by where I'm in this sort of bad habit. I'm not meditating. And then I go, right, I need to just reset. I go and meditate. And I did this the other, uh, a few weeks ago, actually, or actually, no, a month, month or two ago. It was actually beginning of the year. And, um, I was going for a walk and I was like, right, I'm going to meditate, put my headphones in. I had a, I had a track ready and I just spent 10 minutes just breathing and, and focusing on my breath. And after that 10 minutes, having not meditated for a few months, it was amazing. Just the, just the, like I said, the weights being lifted off my shoulders, the, I was opening my eyes. It was like I was seeing the world differently all of a sudden. It was really kind of cool. And so, so even just 10 minutes that that at that time, it had a massive impact on me. I felt less stressed, more like, okay, I can do this now. I'm feeling just reset. It was really great. And so my argument to anyone is like, anyone can find 10 minutes in the day. If you really need to, you're going to find 10 minutes to put out a fire or deal with an emergency. You can find 10 minutes to like reset yourself. And then the benefits, the dividends you're going to reap going forward in terms of your own peace, your, your productivity are just going to be, it's the, the benefit is massive. So I think it's well worth it if you can find even five minutes. Yeah. 
Yeah. And one thing I'd suggest to people, let's say they've never tried it before and they now say, I'm going to, I'm going to set aside 10 minute goal, right? And they do the 10 minutes on day one. And then on day two, they forget or don't have the time. Here's the trap people fall into. They think, oh, I've just failed as a meditator. Why bother? Right. So, you know, that's an opportunity to exercise what in mindfulness meditation we call uh, non-judgment. Right. And say, okay, you know, I didn't meditate today and see if you can uh, exercise some non-judgment. Toward it. It's the judgment towards myself. I am a failure as a meditator that can then shoot you, sabotage you from continuing. There's nothing stopping you on day three from doing two minutes. The fact that you didn't on day two doesn't. It's your belief about the meaning of your missing day two mm. that stops you from meditating on day three, which is a new day after yeah. all, right? That might as well be your new day one. It doesn't matter that you didn't meditate. Yeah, you've So it's the stories we tell ourselves about the starting and stopping that then often discourages us from continuing. I've started and stopped martial arts training many times over the years, you know, and uh, I've had a lot of these same thoughts like, oh no, if I were better, you know, I would have kept going, but I keep being drawn back to it. And then when I come back to it, you know, where do I start? Wherever I am at that moment, right? That's all you can ever do, really. And you've talked about this a few times, actually, this idea of um, stop, uh, sorry, um, kind of setting the bar low is how I would describe it, where you said just start with one breath or start with one minute. And so I think it's a really nice way to ease into it. You, you're, setting your expectations is really important. You don't have to meditate for 10 minutes. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think setting the bar low is a really nice sort of non-intimidating way to start with this. You don't have to go on that week-long retreat, like you said. And so I think being realistic is really important. Yeah. And, you know, even, and I, I, I know on my blog and podcast, I've talked about the setting the bar low, trying a minute, you know, setting it to 30, 30 seconds. I know many of us in the, in the productivity focused world that, that we live in, think about setting a goal and then increasing it, increasing it, increasing it, increasing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I would say when it comes to meditating, see if you can just let let it go where it takes you. Yeah. If you happen, let's say you ha do happen to build up naturally, you know, from a minute to two to five to 10. And then for whatever reason, things happen in your life or you forget or you change your priorities and you go back down to five, you know, and then you have the thought, oh, I've regressed. Yeah. You can apply mindfulness to that and step back and see that as a thought that's in your mind. <laughs> Pay attention to it and not necessarily as the truth that you've somehow gotten worse as a person, right? That's a judgment. Yeah. I mean, yesterday I meditated 10 minutes, today I meditated five minutes. And the point of it is really to have the experience of doing yeah. it, not to build up the number of minutes necessarily to increase, you know, over time. If that's what happens and it works well for you, you know, then that's, that's great. But again, I would just caution people to be on the lookout for those thoughts that can sabotage us yeah yeah be kind to yourself guys be realistic that's yeah. it yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah as we wrap things up i wonder if you could give us yeah. a bit of an insight at all to your daily routine maybe how you go about starting and planning your day to to move forward with intention and if you could speak yeah. to any tools and apps that you do use to be more mindful along the way uh, that'd be great yeah yeah, sure. You know, um, so I always tell people the things I suggest that I do are what happened to work. They're, they're what happened to work for me. So, you know, your mileage may vary. And although I do use technology, you'll hear from what I say. A lot of the things I use are pretty 
simple technology, you know, like notes, written notes, not necessarily a complex workflow system or something like that. So I generally uh, revisit my, let's just say for my work tasks, I revisit my goals at the end of the day. I find that useful. I, I typically then don't have to do it at the beginning of the day. One reason I like doing it at the end of the day, now that can be quite late sometimes, but it's before the new day. Mm. It's kind of taken on a life of its own. <laughs> I've reached whatever the point is at which I say I'm done working. That's when I look at what did I set out as goals for today? What did I accomplish or not? What new things arose? And I re visit them then. One great benefit I found for myself, it helps me to then be relaxed for the rest of the day. It might yeah. be just the evening. Yeah. I'm not mulling over, oh no, there's there can otherwise be an anxiety about how am I going to organize my day tomorrow when I wake up. By doing this at the end of the previous day, I, I release myself of a good amount of that anxiety because it's done. So I can move on to have my evening and sleep knowing I have already. Now, how often do I wake up the next day? And, you know, uh, what's the phrase? Well-laid plans of mice and men, you know, <laughs> go awry. Uh, I work with people all over the world in different time zones. So by the time I wake up, I often have emails, in my case from India, you know, other people who are ahead of the day from me. <laughs> and so I have to reconfigure things, but not as much as if I hadn't spent some time the night before so that's a big one yeah uh, let me just i, I do the same other, by the way and, and i just want to comment um i do the same and i started doing it after i read cal newport's other book deep work he talks about the yes. work shutdown checklist and i literally have a task with like you know check your inbox check your email check your calendar look at the plan for tomorrow sort of close all those loops so yes. that you can sort of go into the evening without this kind of uh, yeah cloud over your head thinking oh what do i need to do tomorrow it's just a really nice way of shutting down so i 100 percent agree it's yeah. a very powerful yeah tip. yeah i really like that and the other maybe these are two somewhat very closely interrelated things which is and, and i am not about all the first many productivity people suggest using your calendar for tasks yes uh, so i have various <laughs> tasks okay you're smiling right uh, I forget when I first, and I'll admit, I went. I was working as a lawyer for many years before I really did this rigorously, and I found it really life changing. And, and I'm going to anticipate the objection that people have to it, which is, oh, you put stuff on your calendar, and then things take longer, and it becomes obsolete. It's in my experience, it's still better than not putting things on yeah. your calendar. <laughs> yeah, you know how often is I put. I schedule out my whole calendar, and by 10 or 11 o'clock, a couple of things have shifted. Still, it's still better. Uh, it's still better. And, and two, it's just because of the way my mind works, and it's a great thing about technology. I benefit from visually dragging things around on the calendar by day, by week. Usually, I go a week or two out. Yeah. I find it really helpful to set aside the amount of time I think something will take. I often, on a, a, either a Friday or a Sunday, We'll put again everything onto Monday that that for the week, and then I start stretching stuff yeah, out, right. moving it onto different days throughout the day, so I can kind of see it, see it all there. And let me just say, for people who have never done that before, 
ex- please expect to be scared out of your mind yeah. when you first do it. Because the first thing it'll tell you is, I am trying to do way more than exactly. I can fit into every hour in the day. Yeah. Um, and a, a common reaction to that feeling is to say, I'm not putting this stuff on the calendar. It's, but you know what? That doesn't stop. That doesn't change the fact that you've got too much to do. Yeah. It just helps you avoid seeing it. Yeah. I'm, I'm laughing because I've, I've talked about time blocking is my phrase for it on my podcast and videos and blog so much. Like it's probably the single most recommended thing I talk about is just putting things on your calendar because we're talking yeah. about intention. In my mind, yeah. there is no better way to make your intentions clear than by allocating blocks of time on a calendar and i think the benefit like you've said is that rather than a task list which is just a list of tasks it's very easy to overcommit with a calendar it forces you to think about how long does this take and when am i going to do it and so if you have 10 things to do but your day fills with the first five now you need to obviously relook and figure it out and so i think it's just such a great way of planning for the day and yet like you said it's, it can be tricky. It can be a bit of an adjustment for people, but, um, I think stick with it and I will even update my blocks and shift and play Tetris on my calendar as I go. And it's a great way of even, I I will, at the end of the week, my calendar looks completely different, but it's actually created like a record or a history log of how I spent my time, which is really nice to look back on. Yeah. And for those people, look, I'm a lawyer. I started out in private practice where we were required to bill our times by tenths of an hour, which is horrible (laughs) in many ways, but it was a real education about how long it actually takes to do things. Most people I found who've never tracked their time like that are wildly off about how long it takes to do things. They say, oh, this is going to take me 15 minutes. And it actually takes them 45. They don't take into account the transition time between things. They don't take into account a lot. And when you, for either, like in my case, I was forced by the company I was working for to do this, or if you don't force yourself, you don't get a realistic understanding of how long it actually, and that's often why by the end of the day, you end up confused about why you didn't get as much done as you thought. And then if you just end up perpetually confused, you know, that's not a recipe either for productivity or just for being satisfied. Mm. Now, this is this is super interesting. Robert, I, I just want to um, conclude by saying thank you so much for sharing all this uh, great advice yeah. uh, uh, today. Um, I think mindfulness and technology is something that we all struggle with. We can all benefit from taking a step back, thinking more mindfully about how we use technology. Um, so thank you for joining me today. Any final words of wisdom or how can people find you online and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, I'll just let people know. Go to technologyformindfulness.com. We've got a blog. We've got a, a podcast there, uh, much like this one, where I interview people. And we've got our online course for learning how to use your smartphone more mindfully at tapintomindfulness.com. That's the name of the course. So you can take that course online at your own pace. It's all pre-recorded guided meditations. There's no app. It's just a series of guided exercises that you do with your phone to learn how to take control over how you use it. That's brilliant. Well, one more time, Robert, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. Thanks, Paul. I had a blast. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin. I hope you enjoyed this episode from the Paul Miners podcast, where I focused on how to be more mindful with technology without destroying your creativity, focus, and attention. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review, and share the episode with your friends. And don't forget 
to also check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about how to be more focused, productive, creative, and happy using technology. And sign up for our mailing list to receive a free guide on how to find balance and manage your technology use with mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast.